Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly women's agenda podcast. In today's ep, we talk about the breastfeeding mother being evicted from a Victorian court, Sam Austin's call for the government to meet the challenges ahead, and Dominic Perrottet's new child trust fund. Thank you for listening. This is episode six of The Crux, recorded on the 15th of March, 2023. My name is Angela Priestley, and today I'm joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, Tyler Lambert. Hello, Tyler. Hello. Okay, so we've had a lot of stories and things going on on Women's Agenda over the past week, particularly as it's only been one week since International Women's Day. And as we know, a lot of organisations like to drop their research, their reports, their initiatives, their various other things around this day. Plenty of organisations don't do much at all as well, regardless of hoping to say that they are. But let's start with the wins. Tyler, what is your win? My win this week, Ange, goes to Michelle Yeoh and the rest of humanity, I should say, for the amazing Oscars win that she took home and wasn't it about time because she was recognised for the lead role in the Daniels film Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which I know you have watched this week, and she became the first Asian woman to take home the Best Actress in the Oscars 95 award ceremonies history. And her reaction and the reaction of her fans and her family was just so incredible. As a culturally diverse woman, I felt so uplifted seeing this moment in history. And also the fact that she spoke about ageism in the industry and, you know, used her speech to remind women that there's nothing that should dampen your ambitions. I think it's just been a a common thread in award ceremonies recently from a lot of the winners, and that has been just so incredible to see. And Michelle said, for all the little boys and girls who look like me watching tonight, this is a beacon of hope and possibilities. It's proof that dreams dream big and dreams do come true. But, yeah, we we have done a fair bit to highlight this story this week, including sharing the response of Michelle's mum, which was just beautiful, and everyone should go and watch that movie, Ange, I think is your consensus for the week. Yeah, and I liked her comment, like, don't let them tell you that you're ever past your prime. I thought that was it was just great. And there's been a bit of a theme, I think, along various award-winning award shows over the past few months where that theme has come up and you've seen awards go to women who, you know, have been at this work for decades and also men as well. And I know that with the Best Actor Award too, which was just a really great moment as well. It was quite spine tingly there. I should say, yes, I did watch it this week. I watched that film with my kids. It was the first time I've really sat down and watched a film from start to finish in a very long time. And it was a lot of fun. It's funny. It's like, it just keeps you on the edge of your seat. It's confusing at many points. You have no idea what's going on. And it is slightly inappropriate for children. So just putting it out there, I thought it was a family movie. And there are moments that are slightly inappropriate that thankfully were so beyond their realm of understanding that I didn't have to do any explaining. So that's good. Um, That's when those moments are best though. Like I feel like all of the best family movies, family TV shows, they all have those kind of nuances that parents are supposed to get that fly over the heads of kids. Yeah. And there was definitely a bit of that. Um, So (laughs) I have a win on a very different front 
So today marks exactly two years since the March for Justice that saw people demanding enough and protesting across the country. Uh, It also marks two years since former Prime Minister Scott Morrison said as those protesters had gathered outside Canberra in numbers too big to ignore really, uh, that he said it demonstrated the triumph of democracy and he described those who were protesting as uh, lucky not to have not been met with bullets. (laughs) So two years later, so I have a lot to say about the current Albanese government and I think that there's plenty more to dissect there, but I think it is a triumph that women did so much to boot the Morrison government out and I think (laughs) a triumph of democracy again that women who put their hand up to run against some of Morrison's own uh, once thought to be previously safe Liberal ministers that those women who did run against them, uh, so many of them were triumphant in their campaigns. And, you know, that line back in question time in 2021, I think a lot of us can remember Scott Morrison saying that. I remember at the time just recalling how it highlighted how Morrison thought that much for justice would be a minor annoyance that he really, he was failing to read the room. And within a little more than a year later, he'd obviously be booted out of office. And by the end of 2020, the Liberal Party's own analysis of their horrendous election result found that uh, Scott Morrison's failure to be in tune with the concerns of women was largely to blame for that loss. And it also found, I thought this was really interesting, that its vote had been decimated across the 30 seats in Australia with the highest proportion of and it uses the term professional women. I assume maybe they're referring to educated women, I'm not sure, but the highest proportion of professional women. So they decimated across those 30 seats and the Liberal Party now only hold three of those 30 seats with the highest proportion of professional women. So ah, I think my win is acknowledging the power of women voting and women getting fed up and running for office. Great. A hundred percent. Okay. So our first story today has generated a lot of hot debate and rage from women across the country and fairly so because it goes to show that pregnant and breastfeeding women are still not safeguarded against discrimination in this country when they really should be. A woman was booted out of a Victorian courtroom last Thursday by a judge who declared her action of breastfeeding a distraction. Judge Mark Gamble then went and upped the ante on Tuesday this week when he evicted another mother for the same thing. Look, a lot of people are up in arms about this decision by the judge and it's just baffling that after backlash that ensued on Thursday that he then went and did this again on Thursday, um, Tuesday, sorry. Um, Former lawyer Peter Brunel, who's the mother of a five-month-old baby, said she felt compelled, so she was the second woman to be evicted, but she felt compelled to advocate for the first woman who was left very distressed and humiliated by the judge's decision. And, look, it just goes to show that, We have so far to go on this issue, even though breastfeeding women should be able to feed their babies wherever they like and legally should be able to feed their babies in any and all public areas, including work, schools, universities, shops, rental properties, and the bloody court, Ange. As a breastfeeding woman, and I know you have also been a breastfeeding woman, (laughs) and I know a lot of other breastfeeding women uh, who are just just everywhere. They're everywhere, (laughs) distracting all of us with their boobs out everywhere. 
they're hungry babies. It's um, creepy, right? It's creepy that we're thinking of this as a fucking distraction. Like it's not a distraction. It is a necessity of life. If you are being distracted, you are the problem. I might just put that out there. But, <laughs> I, um, I I was surprised by this because I just didn't think it was actually a thing anymore. And I'm obviously really disappointed and it's quite upsetting. And I just feel it is so backwards and the fact that it's gone and happened again like he can't even go back and sort of retract on the issue and highlight the fact that actually the court there you know there is the uh general principles of open and uh transparent justice and in that case you know the first woman who was booted out she was there i believe to support witnesses who in a case that was being heard that day the fact that she gets booted out and she's left humiliated like what was she supposed to do where was she supposed to leave that baby to be there that day what was she supposed to do when the baby was hungry did she have to leave at that moment because you know that is where we're at in 2023 like we've literally you can breastfeed in parliament you can breastfeed in workplaces you can breastfeed in the shopping malls there's like nice little comfortable seats now out I always see it all the time I think it's wonderful to see women breastfeeding in shopping malls and making it so open and comfortable especially when they're air conditioned on hot days and there's somewhere that you can go if you don't have air conditioning and I just didn't think it was a thing I I never had any issues I breastfed three children and I never felt I mean, obviously, I, I never openly got kicked out of anywhere because you would have heard more about it on Women's Agenda if I did. But um, <laughs> I also did so a lot in public spaces and I never felt like it was an issue. But maybe I was just lucky in that sense. I don't know. What, what I think you? it depends on where yeah. you are. I've certainly felt uncomfortable in certain spaces. <laughs> I felt uncomfortable at a regional New South Wales RSL breastfeeding <laughs> Really? Okay. I was surrounded by older people, as is the nature of an RSL. And I think that there still is, you know, a tendency from older generations to be uncomfortable about breastfeeding in public. It was obviously not done in that generation. But I, I just find this story so disgusting. And I just, I feel for that mum so much because I think being in the weeds of breastfeeding at the moment, like it's just an uncomfortable emotional time at, at points anyway. Like, you know, it's nice um, in lots of ways, but you do feel like your body is not your own in lots of ways too. And I just think if a judge calls you out in such a public space like that and then draws attention to the fact that you're doing that and to mm-hmm. your body and the fact that you're a distraction because your breast is out, you know, like it just makes me recoil. Like I just, I really feel for that woman and I I really understand why she felt humiliated. You know, she shouldn't, she shouldn't have to feel humiliated. She should feel absolutely kind of empowered in that decision to do that. But I don't think that that's, you know, where we're at really in society. You know, we have come a long way in terms of people publicly breastfeeding and feeling more comfortable to do so. But I do still think there's a long way to go. And and certainly when people like this, and especially a man in power, goes and publicly kind of shames this woman for a very necessary and natural action, I find mm-hmm. it really repugnant. Yeah. And, and he is still sitting there pretty in his job 
doesn't yeah. seem like anything's really happened to him. That, I mean, there's that sense that this person's making legal decisions as well. Like you can talk about your RSL experience and you can think, well, you don't know what these people do for a job. Or, but, but this person has very specifically been put in this place to make very significant decisions about mm. people's lives and he holds these archaic views of thinking that a woman who is breastfeeding is distracting. I just, oh, it makes me so angry. And it is that sense that I just didn't think that this was a thing. Like there is a, you can feel uncomfortable and I get that and there can be people who can be creepy about it and that's just like totally not on. But in terms of where you can and can't do it, I just thought you can breastfeed wherever the hell you want and I just thought that anyone who was trying to say otherwise, like surely they are not in any kind of position of power or authority in 2023. And when your baby's hungry, your baby's fucking hungry. Like you feed your baby. Like that is really the only answer there is. Like anyone that has dealt with a hungry baby knows that that's the only possible solution at that time. And there's one other little thing I might, because I sort of had this reminder of my breastfeeding days and the idea how you, you know, you might, not everyone does this and I'm not saying you have to do this, but you know how you do like the little tent thing over the baby and Mm. like you try to cover up and you'd have something there. And I know that sometimes I'd find myself like I wouldn't have the bit of clothing or something that would make that work for me. And I did like to try and put something over me. And then also as the baby gets older, they don't really want to have that over them. <laughs> like, and they will just kick it away and, you know, screw your tent, mom. Like, what is this? It's 35 <laughs> degrees. I don't want this extra bit of cloth over me. Like, it's not easy to try and do it in a way that satisfies the the needs of other people who might be distracted by it. So just get out there and breastfeed, do it however you want. And credit to that woman who, or the lawyer, sorry, who went in and did that with her five-month-old baby. I think that's quite heroic and awesome. And I hope we can get in touch with her and learn a little bit more. I know. Okay, so Ange, our next story this week is about a new appeal by business heavyweight Sam Mostyn to government which she, in which she issued an address to the Australian Press Club this week in conjunction with the Albanese government releasing its Status of Women report card. Mostyn said there is no overnight fix for equality. It will take decades of work requiring a staged and transparent approach. It's also not an equation whereby if women gain, men somehow lose, she said. She also rallied for the government to heed the advice that the full utilisation of one of the most educated, energetic and capable cohorts, women, uh, has never been more important. And we know that women want opportunity, she said. And you wrote a piece on this and I know you've got some thoughts. What did you make of Mostyn's speech? Uh, So... Sam Austin, as always, she delivers a brilliant speech. So this is not the first time she's delivered a brilliant speech and there's a good reason why she was selected to chair the Women's Economic Equality Task Force. So Sam Austin, like as part of that task force, they'll be taking recommendations to the Albanese government in the lead up to the May budget, which is great to see. You know, we we talked about that two-year legacy since Scott Morrison made that bullets comment. And I think this is where we're seeing a lot of consultation, which I think is really positive. Doesn't mean that we'll necessarily get the results that we need, but the consultation is positive and the fact that it is being heard. Uh, Sam Austin also noted how in the October budget last year, some of the first lines that the government came out with at that point was talking about the need for gender equality and talking about the need to tap into the skills of women and to make sure that we're removing some of the barriers to make sure their full um, economic participation is possible. So some of the ideas and some of the policy reforms, definitely really good ones. So 
The first thing I might note on this is that if I could just repeat the line that she repeated from Danielle Wood's speech from quite telling, where Danielle Wood, she stated back at the Jobs and Skills Summit that I can't help but reflect that if untapped women's workforce participation was a massive iron ore deposit, we would have governments lining up to give tax concessions to get it out of the ground. And the thing is, is that women are this incredible untapped talent and women are highly educated and we are putting so much investment into the education of women, but we're not seeing that education necessarily have the opportunity to translate into clear leadership later on because there are still barriers to women's workforce participation. One such barrier that Sam Austin has noted is for single women particularly, so single mothers particularly. And it was actually under the Gillard government when we saw how payments would start to cease once a child reaches the age of eight. And that kind of shift there could effectively mean that women end up dropping out of education. It can also mean shift women into poverty as well. And it's just this sort of a line where, you know, despite the fact that the majority of single parent households are headed up by women, that what happens at the magical age of eight that means that you you lose some of the this support. And I think so that was really one of her interesting ideas. And I think we're going to hear a lot more about that in the coming months and possibly maybe even in the May budget as well. Uh, she also spoke about paying superannuation on top of paid parental leave, about universal childcare as well, which is obviously critical and important. And in general, noted that it's about smart policy decisions and it's about unlocking the multiple contributions of women. And that's not just about building, you know, this workforce, but it's also about unlocking those contributions of women as people. <laughs> so as parents, as entrepreneurs, as as people with ideas and lives and, you know, caring responsibilities and things like that. So I thought it was a strong speech. I hope that we'll see some of those recommendations really listened to at the May budget. And I also wanted to note that the speech is, I mean, just we're talking a lot about skill shortages and we're talking about skill shortages as we've been banging on about for ages on women's agenda in the care sector, particularly across like early childhood educators in healthcare and other places. But we also need to talk about, you know, the skill shortages in STEM, in renewable energy, particularly as we've looked at in our climate load report, when we think about, you know, what is going to be required for a true renewable energy transition and the lack of skills that are there and the lack of people that are there to help with that and the fact that we could really work with women better to make that happen. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. You know, that AUKUS submarine announcement yesterday as well. So you know, all these thousands of extra people to have these you know, very particular skills over the next few decades and we can't do that by not tapping into the full potential of the population. Yeah, 51% of it. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it is a big gap and I always love when Sam Austin makes these kind of speeches because they really are just so powerful and she speaks to so many very obvious points but in a really clear and concise way and communicates the gravity of these issues in a really easy to digest way and so yeah I hope that the government actually makes tracks on it. Yes. We shall see. So, okay, so on to another story this week. So if you live in New South Wales, you are probably 
kind of getting a little bit aware that there is an upcoming election uh, in, what, less than two weeks now. And so we're seeing a lot of various policy announcements and a big one this week, a really interesting one, has come from New South Wales Premier Dominique Perrottet. So if re-elected on March 25, the Perrottet government has announced a, quote, Kids Future Fund. (laughs) Okay, it's a little bit complex. I'll try and get this right, in which the promise is to put $400 into a trust fund for every child aged up until 10. I think that's at the end of this year. And then for every child born from then on, the government will then match contributions by the child's parents or grandparents of up to $400 a year until the child turns 18. The trust account can't be accessed until the age of 18 and only then accessible for two purposes and that is to help buy a new home, good luck, um, (laughs) for the purposes of education and that would include tuition fees, learning materials, computers and tools to get a qualification. The estimated cost of the New South Wales budget over the next four years will be uh, $850 Tala. Yeah, not not a small little policy measure, is it? Look, I think... Well, firstly, I want to commend the New South Wales government for thinking about gaps and trying to reform. I do want to acknowledge that because I think it's important that governments are always looking at issues and trying to do better. It has been noted that this has been on Perrottet's agenda for quite some time. He built it when he was treasurer, but he never took it to Berejiklian. Um, So, you know, I think it has really been a passion project (laughs) for him. I also think they've made some good announcements in the space of, you know, universal free preschool, which, you know, one of their their recent policy announcements. I think that that's a potential game changer. But broadly, I do feel like the Kids Trust Fund is no bueno, really. Um, I think ultimately it's going to, it will support kids from middle class, even potentially lower middle class, middle class, and then very wealthy families. But for the poorest families in Australia, we know it's not going to really amount to much. You know, the government contributes $400 to the accounts of, you know, kids in New South Wales, and then their parents aren't able to make co-contributions. They're going to end up with not very much in that account, whereas, you know, parents that can easily put away um, up to $1,000 a year for their kids are going to to end up with a nice little nest egg. It's not going to be a life-changing nest egg, I don't think, but it will be, you know, something nonetheless. And obviously we do know that people are finding it hard to live at the moment. So, you know, with the predicted interest rates on this policy, they're saying that, you know, you could end up with $49,000 or thereabouts in, in your bank account if you're to put, if the government is to put in those $400 every year for a baby born this year and their parents are to top it up by $1,000 a year as well. So, sorry, that was probably a very confusing way of describing that. But, yeah, look, I, I think ultimately it's not really been looked at adequately enough. And when we are facing a massive crisis that is right now, it's an urgent crisis in cost of living for families of New South Wales and across Australia now, I just think that that money could be really allocated to things that are really quite pressing at the moment, including issues like food insecurity, which we know is something that a lot of families are, are facing right now. And the, the uptick in that is is really immense. You know, issues like domestic and family violence, again, such a huge 
and pressing issue. I just don't know that this is where our public funds should be spent at the moment. What do you reckon, Edge? So I like the idea of a future kids fund or a kids future fund. (laughs) I don't think that's the worst thing. I think it's actually really vital and important, especially as a lot of the challenges that we talk about for the future are very much going to impact our kids in the future. And as they are already impacting many of us now, but our kids are certainly going to feel a lot worse. And we can see how I think any parent, you do have those concerns about what life could be like for the next generation and the generation after that for these kids today who are growing into this world where we know that there are really complex challenges ahead. And I don't think whatever the final figure is in the dream scenario is going to solve it. Um, it's not going to, it's not going to be able to get a deposit on a house. In no. some, But maybe it can go towards education and maybe, you know, that's a better way to think about it is that it is more of an investment in the future education of kids. In terms of the uh, co-contributions, I mean, I've seen a lot of different stuff on this and so I'm not entirely clear about the policy and I think that's probably going to be a bit of an issue for the Perote government is just to make sure it is as clear as possible. I have seen actually that the government will make contributions for those who those families that are receiving the family tax benefit A, so meaning that they will kind of step in. So not means tested exactly, but that they will step in to make contributions for families that are earning under the 110,000 mark or whatever it is for to be eligible for that family tax benefit A. And also I haven't seen the $1,000 mark, but up to $400 a year for everyone else if matched. So I don't know that it's necessarily as big an impact in terms of families that can and can't afford it because from my reading, there are still contributions to families if they're not able to put in that $400, but then you can also look at the cost of living and say, even if you are earning over the family tax benefit A, that you you may still struggle to be able to afford that $400 to get the full co-contribution amount. I don't know. I just see this big giant elephant in the room in the shape of a submarine at the moment. And I think the federal government wants to spend $350 billion or thereabouts on this 30-year submarine plan to deliver a handful of subs. And I don't know, that's where I think, like, so this policy is actually looking pretty good compared to that. (laughs) $850 million, it's a drop in the ocean. It's it's an Australian submarine in the Pacific, $850 million compared to the uh, $350 billion. So, yeah. Yeah, look, I think that broadly it's a, a nice concept. And actually I read a piece today that it was similar idea that was actually implemented that by the Blair Labor government in the UK. It only lasted for eight years there. But all those kids have a house in an education house. <laughs> <laughs> bloody yeah. needed in England. It's so bloody cold. Um but <laughs> No, I just think, you know, that it's still gap ridden. I like the fact that they're trying to innovate in this space. And I do think, and it's come as a bit of a surprise, to be honest, that the Perite government really has done quite a lot to implement good policies for families and to advocate in that space. And I think that's where, you know, he is trying to be known or to build his legacy. So I think work needs to be done on this policy, but I don't hate it. I've seen worse. <laughs> I've seen worse things. Um, like, as you said, the submarine steel, which is very problematic. <laughs> Maybe we need to come back to that one in our next <laughs> podcast. 
Yeah, so we shall see and hopefully learn more about that. I think you made a good point about legacy and maybe we don't always see, I don't know, I I like politicians that are considering policies that are about legacy. I mean, obviously it's an appeal to, you know, certain seats and things, you know, obviously it's there's a reason behind this policy that it's been designed to appeal to a certain cohort and the hope that they'll vote for them. Um, but then again, you know, the fact that he has been considering this for some time, that means that, you know, he is considering the idea behind and also his legacy. And I just think if more politicians can be considering their legacy, I just think we'd all be in a much better spot. And I don't believe that very many necessarily are. No. All right, so I think that wraps us up for the key stories for this week. But to leave on a final thought or reflection, what are you thinking about over the next week? Well, I will be reflecting on, well, it's not so much whether I'll be reflecting on it, but I will be trying to juggle having a sick kid at home and trying to work full time, which is obviously a conundrum that many families face, um, particularly working women. But yes, my child has just been called home with hand, foot and mouth, which is delightful. But it does make me think about what is kind of required to better support families that go through this. And I I know just having a baby and a toddler, Ange, and I know you've also been through uh, this same delightful hurdle. They're always riddled with some kind of sickness and it's just another kind of load and juggle on your plate uh, when you're, you're trying to get things done. So that is what I'm <laughs> reflecting on. And I will also be really hoping that I don't end up with hand, foot and mouth. So watch this space. <laughs> this is for next podcast. I don't think you will. I, I, I don't know that that is such a, I don't remember that from my childhood, but I think like you I don't know. My, my understanding is that adults have good immunity. You don't get can, it. <laughs> I think there's a shingles situation that can occur, particularly in older people. So it's definitely uh, something to watch. What about you, Ange? What are you thinking about? What I'm thinking about is please do not take anything I just said as any kind of medical advice because I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but having, I've, I definitely had kids with hand, foot and mouth and the worst is when they get it again. I was like, don't you just get it once? But apparently there are, like COVID, different variations. Oh, I'll look forward um, to that. So a uh, very different thought for me is I am thinking about those submarines. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking about the bipartisan support that the deal is receiving. So the announcement yesterday of the uh, between US, UK um, and Australia that really kind of put more detail around the AUKUS deal around uh, what we are looking to purchase, the capability we are looking to develop in Australia, how much money that will cost and what that means over the next three decades in terms of acquiring submarines. And I'm trying to count how many submarines we end up with in 30 years time in the whatever decade that will be. It's like, I don't know. It's not many, but I can say that. But uh, yeah, so I am thinking about that. I think I'm thinking about in the context of, like I said, the bipartisan support, the wall-to-wall media coverage, largely positive media coverage that it receives from the mainstream press. I know that we haven't done much on it yet, but I feel like sometimes with this stuff, there's this idea that because it's defense, because it's national security, that, you know, there are these secrets or there's this knowledge that we're not privy to and that we don't have the information on. Therefore, we should just trust those who are in power to meet our needs. 
But, you know, we know domestically and we know from history that um, you can't really rest on complacency with these sorts of ideas or these sorts of deals and what they mean. And um, and I just think, like, this is a huge cost. This is a huge length of time. This is a huge risk in terms of what we're choosing to back in terms of the technology here and in terms of being locked into the whims of the American electorate and the future surprises that may get thrown up there. And I don't know. There's- yeah, I don't want to be locked into anything with America for very long because that country goes rogue. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Like that that's the thing. We could be dealing with a, a Trump or we could be dealing with somebody who's even more extreme than Donald Trump. We, we do know that, you know, 50-something million Americans did vote for Trump. We could very much be dealing with an America that reverts back to America first policy or something else or who knows. But here we are. We're sort of, you know, trusting our future to this and, um, but for me, it is the cost. It is the length of time, like I say. It is the overwhelming support and there is this idea as, you know, as this kind of, you know, Australian woman sitting here looking from the sidelines that we're not supposed to get too critical of this because these are the elected officials that we have in power and they know stuff that we necessarily don't know. But, you know, like I say from history, again, we know that's certainly not the case. And that is it for the Women's Agenda podcast for another week. Uh, you can access all these stories and much more on our website at womensagenda.com.au forward slash subscribe. And we do put out that newsletter just before lunchtime, which speaking of which I need to go and do right now. So until next week, thank you for listening. Listener.